I recently was in a talk with a friend who said, you, you, you can't talk about race without talking about place. Um, those things go hand in hand. And it, it's a multi-layered kind of dynamic because the way systemic racism works is there's a narrative that, you know, black people can't, shouldn't be tied to the land, right? Um, there's all sorts of negative uh, narratives and tropes to black people being tied to the land. But actually land is like a, you know, a huge source for uh, communal nourishment and, and physical nourishment as well. And so there have been movements trying to, you know, fight against that narrative to move, uh, you know, more people of color back into like an authentic connection with the land and one that's not wrapped up in the systemic oppression that we've seen through uh, bureaucracy and through uh, white exploitation. Hi, I'm Philippe Lazaro. And I'm Christy Renault. You're listening to the Grassroots Podcast, a Plant With Purpose production. I think that every time that we unfortunately have a crisis pop up, um, one of the good things about it is that we do move uh, more uh, into a situation in where we can feel that we can see ourselves in the other and have a more uh, substantial kind of conversation about justice. As you can see, we're diving straight into today's episode, a conversation on environmental anti-racism. This voice you've been hearing is the Reverend Aaron Rogers from St. Louis. He's the Director of Ministry and Theology for the organization Faith for Justice, and his passion and training is in public theology. So how does our relationship with God play out in our relationships with one another, or across society, or how does this shape our conversations about the environment and about racism? These, of course, are topics that we've been hearing a lot about this summer. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. When extreme weather strikes, it affects everyone, but not equally. People of color and the poor are always hit the hardest. This inequality is called the climate gap. And as climate change continues to grow, the divide is only getting wider. Yeah, there's so many different ways we could talk about the intersection between environmental justice and racial justice. For example, we could talk about how part of the legacy of housing segregation, redlining, and systemic poverty in the United States result in communities of color living in the most polluted zip codes today. In the Tri-City area, it's it's the same story. You have Tri-City area that is surrounded by heavy, dirty industry. We could talk about how countries in Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia, these are the most vulnerable to climate change despite contributing the least in terms of carbon emissions. This is something we're really familiar with through our work at Plant With Purpose. In Burkina Faso, average temperatures in the Sahel region have increased by almost one and a half degrees over three decades. By 2050, the increase may have risen to 3.5 degrees. Each year, 20,000 hectares of forest disappear. Yet the forests are an essential element in climate regulation. We could talk about the underrepresentation or the erasure of black, indigenous, and persons of color in spheres like the outdoor industry or conservation. When you look around, you don't see people that you identify with. You don't feel welcome. You feel out of place. You feel literally like you are an outsider. 
The relationship between environmental justice and racial justice is so strong. Ultimately though, I think Ion Elizabeth Johnson does the best job of really capturing why it's important to look at these two issues together. I need you to understand that our inequality crisis is intertwined with the climate crisis. If we don't work on both, we will succeed at neither. Yeah, this topic goes wide and it goes deep. And if we're talking about environmental justice on this show, especially through the lens of loving God and loving God's people, loving our neighbors as ourselves, this is a topic that we absolutely have to address. And we're not going to address it just this once. Like I said, this is a topic that contains so many different areas to focus on. We want to look at the way environmental racism crosses over from urban and rural lines. We want to talk about the African-American legacy of farming and environmental care here in the United States. And all around the world, we want to look at the struggle that indigenous communities are facing. And so we're, we're going to be doing more of that on the show, not just on this show, but in episodes moving forward. So consider this, perhaps, to be like an intro, a first step as we explore some of the ways that we can integrate our desire for racial justice and sustainability. If we continue to be siloed, if we continue to be in places of comfort, if we can continue to sit where we've always sat, we deny ourselves the opportunity to get a sense of the fuller picture and all the beauty that it entails. And that's something that we, you know, we should be able to live without. Um, I think God wants us to see the world as multifaceted as it is and wants us to be changed by what we see. I asked Aaron who we should talk to in order to better understand how that applies to where we are in the struggle against environmental racism. Yeah, that's somebody who I think is doing like a, a good study on it. Um, He's a professor at Eden Theological Seminary. His name is Ben Sanders. He's working, working on some kind of written project about that. Hey, man, how are you? <laughs> All right. Wow, he's gorgeous. Also, my 10-month-old was hanging with us throughout our conversation. I'm among the millions these days trying to take on both working from home and childcare, so enjoy that. I'm kind of rolling the dice and seeing how long he'll be happy in this thing before... Uh... Roll the dice, man. Let's do it. Yeah. Is this going to be his first episode of the podcast? At this point, maybe. What's his name? Can I ask his name? Yeah, his name's Reese. Reese? Hey, Reese. <laughs> What's up, buddy? You ready to roll? <laughs> Looks like he's got some good questions. We decided to start by asking Ben about his background. How did his faith build a framework around justice that led to the pursuit of environmental anti-racism? So let me tell you that story. So I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. Um, so that's where I was born, which is a, it's a town just north of Chicago right on Lake Michigan, it was a great place to grow up. It was an incredibly diverse place to grow up from the time that I was really in kindergarten on. I never had a sense of myself being one of the only or anything like that. I was a Christian when I was applying to colleges and I didn't know much about colleges because I didn't have a lot of people in my family who went, but I knew that I wanted to go to a small school and I don't really have a clear sense why. I think I just wanted smaller classroom settings. So I get to Hope College, which is in Holland, Michigan, which is in Western Michigan. So the other side of the lake from where I'd spent the first 18 years of my life. And in Holland is the first time in my life where I really found myself wondering about the intersection in a conscious way between Christian faith and race and racism. 
because Hope was a predominantly white institution and chapel was a regular part of the, the weekly rhythm of campus life. Uh, we worshiped together at, uh, at a gathering called The Gathering on Sunday evenings. It was at Hope that I started to ask questions about um, race and faith. And that was through a class in liberation theology. And some of my first introduction to themes of environmental degradation and environmental racism came through those undergraduate classes that I took at Hope College. So the paths were sort of, uh, they were like parallel, but um, the paths didn't intersect until I started to read scholars of color, and particularly women of color, around uh, issues of environmental racism and how um, environmental degradation affects communities of color in disproportionate ways. And so for a long time, it was just academic. And then while a graduate student in Denver, I started to get involved in both ministry and activism, public activism. And it was out of that activism that I really started to develop a real sense of how concern about the environment and concern about what was happening to um, bodies of colors, specifically as it related to police violence and some of the ways that we have um, sort of organized our world and our society, those things started to kind of creep together in ways that weren't just about how and where we put our waste and who is disproportionately impacted by how we um, do things like cut down trees or, or who is affected first by global climate change. Uh, some of what I'm starting to think about now um, and have been thinking about now for a few years is what would it mean for Christians to begin to think about the destruction, the killing, the maiming of bodies of color as a form of environmental degradation. One of the connections that Dr. Ben makes is that as human beings, we are a part of creation or a part of nature, a part of the environment. So violence against human beings is a category of environmental degradation. And of course, racism has been such a major catalyst of human violence. Remembering back to our last session, we were talking about how certain movements in church history went so far to the extreme in trying to separate the material world from the spiritual world that it created this false idea, a heresy, that the physical world is evil and the non-material world is pure. But we learned there and we know that this conflicts with the arrival of Jesus as the word made flesh. Uh, it conflicts with the way that that we should understand theology and that the way that the church has always understood theology, that God incarnate redeems the physical world and the spiritual world. They're not separate, but they're one and the same. In a lens that sees humans as part of the environment, part of nature, this can still be compatible with a theology that recognizes the fact that we have a unique role within nature, steward it, to transform it, and to participate in its process of redemption. Now, I think one of the best ways we can regain this perspective is through discipleship from our black, brown, and indigenous uh, brothers and sisters from their perspectives, where this goes without saying. We'll be hearing more on this from Dr. Ben, as well as another guest coming up later. Can I ask you to uh, maybe give us a framework to better understand the idea, the concept of violence? I think sometimes when I use that in conversations about race, People uh, associate that with probably the most, uh, you know, direct, visible forms of physical violence. And sometimes right. it can be harder to expand that. And, and that is a big part of what violence entails. But sometimes it can be harder to expand that into other ways violence is experienced. Um, you know, things like erasure or, um, 
yeah, just the loss of one's culture, one's property, one's land or heritage. Uh, so could you maybe give us um, uh, maybe a bit of a working definition just to help us be able to speak about violence that occurs uh, uh, through the environment, through racism, uh, in a way that helps people stay on board? That is such a good question. So I want to say this about the framework that I'm about to give for violence. I want to say this about it because uh, so when I teach about violence in um, Christian ethics classes, I frame it this way, but I have other things that I do to frame it. So I want to say this before I frame it. One of the things that I believe fundamentally about violence as we experience it, and particularly violence as we experience it as Christians, is that um, we ought to be oriented to expressions of power in certain ways, which is to say one of the things that I think is essential to Christian faith is learning to see violence, not just in places that offend our senses, but to find ways to tie our understanding of violence to what God is teaching us about the integrity of creation. So how do we do that? We cannot understand violence and what it means outside of particular context. So there are certain things that represent violence and that represent violent practices in San Diego, uh, where you and Reese are, right? There, there are certain things that he's going to grow up inside of because he's in San Diego um, that he's going to experience that I will not experience here in St. Louis, Missouri and vice versa. So one of the first things we need to um, recognize and really call name as true about violence is that it's always contextual. And, and it's up to communities to identify what it is. So what I'm trying to do here, Philippe, is I'm trying to take the concept of violence and I'm trying to place it inside of a Christian framework. And the first thing that, um, that a Christian framework, I think, in, insists on is the contextual nature of violence. And contextual doesn't mean relativism. Contextual means it's actually in a context and you can't understand what violence is until you understand that context, right? Okay, so now that I've said that, let me, let me say this as a way to sort of illustrate it a little bit more. Uh, the late great theologian James Cone, the black theologian James Cone, um, the father of black liberation theology. And I think it was the last chapter of his first book, which is titled Black Theology and Black Power, uh, takes up this question of violence. And he takes it up primarily because he is already prepared for the ways that people in positions of power have learned how to use claims of violence in order to disempower folks who are resisting structural violence. The most clear example we have in our contemporary moment is folks who are so enraged about the looting that's happening, the rioting and looting, and I'm doing the scare quote thing on purpose, right? Um, as a result of the police killings of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd and the, the recent shooting of Brother Blake, all of these things that have happened, they are clearly, I think, expressions of violence. And so what Cone was concerned about is um, how the responses to that violence can be labeled themselves as violent uh, in ways that disempower folks who are resisting. So I say all of that just to say that um, at the heart of my concern with violence is how are practices of ecological degradation um, demeaning God's creation by treating poor and oppressed marginalized people in the United States, but also globally as if they are dispensable. I think that that concern has to be at the heart of what Christians mean when we talk about violence, because otherwise it just becomes a discourse on sort of relativism and on sort of what hurts our particular feelings based on where we are. I hope that I'm making some sense here, Philippe. Some of what I tried to do here is one, say Christianity should matter. 
Two, context matters because context is important to Christianity. And we can talk about the incarnation. We could talk about God coming to be with Israel, but actual space matters. And inside of that space, God has expressed a clear concern for those who live and, and, and exist on the margins. And so when Christians talk about violence, ecological degradation, racism, so on and so forth, we ought to be focused on those who are most negatively impacted um, by the things that we're talking about in structural and systemic ways. So there's my framework. Yeah, it sounds like one of the things you know, you're know you particularly passionate about is reminding folks that to pursue a healthier environment, that it includes uh, pursuing a healthier um, sphere of existence for Black bodies. Yes. And, and thus, anti-racism is a non-negotiable part of, of environmentalism. And it seems like a lot of this does come from an awareness that uh, there's a popular narrative around environmentalism that uh, has been exclusive of um, Black participation, of um, other communities of color, uh, really fitting it into this narrative. I'm, I'm curious if you can explain a little bit more of some of how you've seen that exclusion and some of the ways that it, it just doesn't match, um, yeah, the broader scope of reality. Yeah, I, I think, Philippe, you could probably speak more extensively to how that has played out than me just because of how long and how deeply committed you are uh, to work around environmental justice. But I can tell you that some of what I experienced early on and continue to experience is that it, it's a real cultural issue, right? So so that even um, when you, in my experiences, oftentimes when people of color enter um, circles or communities of um, where, where folks are concerned about the environment, especially if these spaces are, are, are predominantly white, there's a cultural gap that is immediately evidenced in the language that's used to talk about what the problems are, right? I mean, language is often the first choice. What are folks talking about? What impacts are being named, right? Is there any concern with bodies at all? You know, one of the real privileges of certain predominantly white environmental spaces is folks really can be concerned about the environment immediately and then eventually. And, um, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, this has become, a, you know, our concern for bodies has become a more immediate reality. But, you know, for a long time and in many spaces, it's still possible to be concerned about the environment uh, and sort of get to the bodies later. Well, this to me is always reflective of, you know, folks who are concerned about the environment, but um, have no real concern for their daily bread the nature of it or access to it. And so oftentimes when you just get into the language, what are folks talking about? Whose bodies are being mentioned, right? What impacts on the bodies, on bodies are being mentioned? I often see um, a gap there almost immediately, but but I mean, again, I'd be interested in, in what you've seen in that regard. Yeah, I, I think, you know, some of it is just when I think of my initial introduction to a lot of the urgent um, uh, environmental issues going on, things like climate change. So much of the narrative was, A, it was focused on, you know, projections of things that would happen, uh, you know, maybe in 20 years and 50 years in places like North America, um, rather than thinking of what was already being felt and experienced in uh, places closer to the equator, Sub-Saharan Africa, Pacific Island Nation. Um, so much of the narrative was focused on things like habitat loss and uh, the polar bears were like the face of climate change. And that's, I, I think, a totally legit and valid concern. But also the more I've spent time in communities where folks regularly wrestle with, do we leave the land of our, of our ancestors and generations of our family? Is our country going to be underwater by the time my kids are grown up? 
the more I, I see those narratives and hear of climate refugees and yeah, food insecurity due to in soil infertility, it really does feel like we've buried the lead and uh, erased some of the, the concerns that are already happening, not just concerns for decades from now. I think you're absolutely right, Philippe. And I think that um, what you're naming is a radical difference in worldviews that I named as a cultural and linguistic difference that shapes the spaces where a concern for the environment exists separate from a concern for bodies and particularly for bodies of color. We have to disturb that. And what I'm getting really close to saying, and I'll just, you know, sort of, I'll just come right out and say, um, I no longer take seriously folks who claim to be concerned about environmental degradation, but are not concerned about white supremacy. You cannot be concerned about environmental degradation if you're not concerned about white supremacy. And I don't think that you can actually have the most robust holistic perspective on what's happening to the environment and of why it is of such um, such essential and emergent uh, concern to we creatures who call ourselves humans. I don't think that we can really see that if we don't prioritize using um, a critical race lens, a lens critical of white supremacist norms and ways of thinking and seeing the world in order to understand, to your point, why these issues are important. That's good. Let me run after my kid real quick. <laughs> please, please watch that head. Redlining was a practice that was most heavily applied from the 1930s to the 1960s. At the time, the Federal Housing Administration argued that if black families bought homes in the suburbs, property values of the other homes, the ones they were already insuring, would decline. As part of the New Deal, in every metropolitan area, actual red lines were drawn to indicate where banks or insurance agencies could insure mortgages. Because the Federal Housing Administration had determined that, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities, end quote, this is actual writing from the agency, black families would be denied mortgage insurance and loans when applying to live in suburbs. In 1968, the Fair Housing Act put an end to the formal practice of redlining, but it has a legacy that continues. The exclusion of black families from suburbs prevented these families from building equity or gaining wealth. As white families left more urban areas, so did a lot of industries and jobs. Black families often had no choice but to remain in redline districts, areas that developers and investors won't go near. These formerly redlined areas still suffer from their history of neglect in many ways, a significant one being environmentally. Data gathered by Portland State University and the Science Museum of Virginia found that most of the country's historically redlined districts now contain the hottest parts of the country. They're actually five degrees warmer than non-redlined areas on average. The lack of air conditioning or adequate ventilation in many homes in these areas also put these populations at a greater risk of heat stroke and other illnesses. Pollution continues to be an ongoing problem for these areas. Often, high emissions production facilities are put up in these areas because residents have little political or economic influence. A look at the most polluted zip codes in the country revealed that most of them had either a predominantly black or Hispanic population. 77042, Houston, Texas. 30% Hispanic, 26% Black. 92408, San Bernardino, California, 
67% Hispanic. 80216 Denver, Colorado, 71% Hispanic. 92501 Riverside, California, 57% Hispanic. There's a reclaiming of land um, that must happen. And that reclaiming of land, I want to add quickly, is not centered around black body. I think that reclaiming of land in, in this country uh, centers the degradation and the destruction of native ways of being in life. Our efforts to talk about environmental anti-racism would be woefully incomplete without spending time hearing from Native voices. Navajo Nation has been getting news coverage this year, and unfortunately for a very sad reason. Uh, the nation was one of the hardest hit groups by the coronavirus epidemic, particularly in the early part of this summer. The Navajo Nation, located in parts of Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, has been one of the hardest hit areas of COVID-19 and now has the highest infection rate in the United States. We wanted to learn how to better learn from and care for our indigenous neighbors. Carol Bremer Bennett is a member of Navajo Nation. She's the CEO of World Renew, an organization that embraces a family-centered approach to ending global poverty food security, peace and justice, and economic livelihood and health. We spoke to her at a time when she was handling an emergency situation so close to home. Uh, we, we thought it would be best if Carol introduced herself. Absolutely. Well, in Navajo, we always start off with a greeting, Yat-A, which is a welcoming and embracing and a statement of um, how we are and how we're in harmony. And so I say Yat-A to you, both of you today. She'e Carol Bremer Bennett Yenishe, Tohadlini Nishle, Todachini Basis Chin. And those are my names. I'm called Carol Bremer Bennett, and I am also um, born for the clan of the Tohadlini, which is the Water Flows Together people, and born into the clan of the Todachini, which is the Bitter Water people. And in Navajo, our clans are very important to establish our identity but also to establish our connection to one another. And connection via clans is very important to the Navajo people. And so I am honored to be able to name those clans that I was actually adopted into. Um, and so that's part of my story. Thank you. Thanks for that great introduction and, and teaching us a little bit along the way as well. We know, we've heard in the news that the Navajo Nation was really hit hard by COVID-19, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's going right now and maybe the experience that you and other leaders in that community have had in, in responding to the needs within the community as the pandemic has come through very strongly? Quite honestly, it's been heartbreaking. I, about two weeks ago, reached a point where I now know more than 10 people personally who've been, passed away and lost their lives because of COVID. One of my friends lost both of her parents a couple months ago to COVID and the Navajo Nation. And so it's been very hard to watch here from West Michigan and see the Navajo people going through such a dramatic crisis and traumatic crisis. Yet I'm so thankful that God placed me in the role that I'm in right now with World Renew, it feels a bit like my Esther moment to consider that perhaps for such a time as this, God put me in a role leading an organization in the United States that responds to 
natural disasters, political instability, health crises, poverty and hunger all over the world, including in the U.S., and that I would be able to have a, a unique perspective and a heart connection to the Navajo and to the Zuni people of the Southwest to understand this current crisis and have the right connections to be able to help people all over the United States and Canada to respond to the crisis on the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation population is quite large. It's the largest tribe in the United States and the largest land area tribe in the United States. There's an estimate of about 300,000 Navajos. Not all Navajos live right around the Navajo Nation area, which is in the Four Corners region of the United States. There's an estimate of about 150 to 200,000 that live right on or near the Navajo land in the Southwest. So if you consider how um, that has hit, you can say that about 5% of the population has um, tested positive, which is really high. And the death rate has also been pretty high. In fact, per capita, even if you use the higher number, um, that's 161 people who've lost their lives per 100,000 people. And the highest per capita death rate in the world right now, according to John Hopkins, is Belgium, and they have 86 per 100,000. So if the Navajo Nation has 161 per 100,000, that's staggering. And the United States is at 48 people per 100,000 as far as deaths go. Another way to look at the numbers is also to compare the deaths to the positive cases. And so if you get it, how likely are you to pass away from it? Um, that's another way to, to look at the numbers. And that also is extremely high for the Navajo Nation. I think um, the U.S. right now is about 55th in the world as a country at a 3.3% ratio for what they call the high case uh, fatality ratio. The Navajo Nation is at 5%. That would put them as a nation about 25th in the world. So it's it's been hitting the Navajo Nation really hard. Those numbers are, they're intense to listen to. And we just want to express great sadness for what that community is experiencing. It's so true because every number is a life. And as I talked to you about how my clans are so important in the Navajo context, every life lost just so many people have been lost, losing multiple uh, family members. Another reason why the, Navajo, the COVID crisis has hit the Navajo Nation so hard is because Navajos live in tight family groups. And even though there's a lot of space on the reservation, and, and if you ever have traveled to the Southwest, it can look like, and it is, I mean, great expanse. I miss seeing the, the horizon of, you know, 50, 100 miles away. You know, there's great amount of land and, and space between. But when you actually look at how people live together, they often live together in one or two homes with extended family members, you know, where you can have 10, 12, 16 people all living, you know, really close to each other, all in one or two homes together. And so when people are told if you get it to isolate or self-isolate, there's just not the space. Um, because a lot of people are living in poverty and in very close quarters with one vehicle. And so even 
you know, even my friends who work in the healthcare around the Navajo Nation say, you know, grandma shows up for a test, but she has to be driven in by somebody else because she doesn't drive. And the little kids are in the car too, because there's nobody at home to babysit them. And so carloads of people show up for testing. So you know that if one person is testing positive, the rest of that family also has been exposed. And so that's been very devastating and hard to control the spread of the virus. We also have heard that the Navajo Nation faces issues of food security, access to clean water, and some other systemic challenges that I'm I'm sure compound and make this situation a lot harder. Yeah, can you help our listeners better understand some of those systemic issues and how they might play into what's going on right now and impact the lives of community members? There are absolutely some um, infrastructure issues that have exacerbated the COVID crisis. So approximately 40% of Navajos living on the Navajo Nation don't have electricity and around 30% don't have running water. And so when you're telling people to lock down and shelter in place and institute curfews, you're asking them to self-rely, you know, on their homestead and without electricity for charging phones or staying connected. Sometimes that also helps run, you know, heat or air conditioning, depending on what you need, refrigeration for food. That's really difficult if you if you don't you rely on going frequently because you don't have electricity so you rely frequently to go into town to do things and to get things because you don't have the electricity also with the running water um, many people go to places a few miles away sometimes 30 40 miles away to get water in huge storage tanks and haul that water back to their homes and there's just a limited amount. They're already doing that. And then you tell people, um, you know, you need to wash your hands more frequently. You need to not go to those collecting places because we don't want you congregating. Or perhaps some of those places are off the Navajo Nation boundaries and the curfew said nobody can, you know, enter or leave the Navajo Nation during these weekend curfews. It just really made it difficult for people to continue to live their regular lives, but also add in the extras that they needed to do. Hearing those numbers around how many people lack that food security and that access to water and electricity, that's such a large ratio. Has it been like that for a long time? Um, Or what are some of the events that have led to that injustice and that, that disparity that we see? Some people will say that actually a lot of the poor health of the Navajo goes back all the way to the 1860s when Kit Carson and the federal government rounded up the Navajos off of our land and marched us to Bosque Redondo on what's called the Navajo Long Walk. And it was a forced internment camp um, that the Navajos were held in in 1864 to 1868 until a treaty was signed with the government. And then the people who survived that were allowed to go back. But as you can imagine, a lot of people didn't survive. But during their time in the internment camp and being held captive there, the Navajo people were given flour, lard, and coffee beans. And, you know, it helped you maybe store up fats to survive. 
but it altered the genetics makeup of, of the people themselves. And so a lot of people have, have looked at those times to say, you know, um, those who survived were the ones who could store up those fats and, you know, make it out of that time period and get back home again. And so now those altered genetics are being passed down from generation to generation, and it's making Navajos more susceptible to diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancers. So all of those things, there's so many factors, but all of those things made the underlying health conditions of the Navajo particularly susceptible to COVID-19. And then you can just add in the whole health care. The treaty that, that the Navajo signed with the U.S. government to be able to return back home from the long walk guaranteed the Navajo people education and health care. So there are Navajo, um, there's the Indian Health Service that does have hospitals around throughout the Navajo Nation. But you can imagine that they are understaffed, often underfunded. Um, it's difficult to recruit doctors to come. Some of the amazing stories, actually, that have come out on some of the national media stories about the Navajo Nation and its fight against COVID have featured some of the doctors, both Navajo doctors, but also others who've come to say, I'm going to serve in this place. It's, it's a hard place to serve, but they need doctors and I'm going to make the sacrifices in location or um, pay to be a doctor in this place and I wouldn't have it any other way. We know that President Nez is a committed Christian and that a lot of the rest of the leadership um, and the population of, of the Navajo Nation itself, that Christianity is plays a crucial role. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Christianity is impacting that community and some of the historical role there? And if you have any ability to talk about how that offers hope in this moment, that would be great as well. I think the Navajo Nation is a place where Christianity has definitely taken root. In fact, almost 60% of Navajos will say that they're Christian. And so there's a long history. And of course, it's a history that has its highs and its lows about Christianity coming to the Navajo people. Certainly, there were times that it was done forcibly. Uh, it was done with the intent to um, save a heathen or pagan people. You know, it was done with a Western mindset that you have to lose all of your other cultural identity in order to become a Christian. Um, and so it certainly has that part in its past as well. But today, I see more and more Navajo Christians who embrace fully that they are a child of God and that they are a Navajo child of God and that God created them that way. They don't have to lose any of their Navajo-ness to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, if they embrace it, they can see Jesus more fully. They can connect and their ministry is more powerful. Um, there's some beautiful things being done in prayer, in worship life, in songs that embrace the Navajo drum or more of a Navajo chant kind of feel to it and, and incredible artwork that's being done that also can speak testimony to being both Navajo and being Christian and not having to choose. I know when I spoke to um, school groups and college groups often, 
And people would ask me, you know, is it hard to be Navajo and to be Christian? And I would say yes, but in a way, it's harder to be American and be Christian than to be Navajo and to be Christian because Navajo is the culture of Navajo is so community oriented. It's much more in line with, I think, how the Bible and how we view the early church as expressed in Acts, how you really live in community together, caring for one another. And so that's not intention at all with what the Bible is teaching versus what the Navajo culture is teaching. And certainly there are things in Navajo culture that, um, in traditional religion of the Navajo that are intention with the Bible and those things you need to sort out. But I see great leaders in the Navajo Nation coming forward in their Christian faith. President Nez and Vice President Lizer both are that way, and they've surrounded themselves with others who are, are also strong Christians. For some of us who are listening, who are maybe for the first time seeing or, or having it sink in the, the challenges that are facing our um, Navajo brothers and sisters. What are some practical things we can do to better love and serve that community and, and other First Nations in general? Yeah, what are some actions we could take? I get a question oftentimes, you know, uh, what should I call you? Should I call you an Indian? Should I call you Native American? Should I call you Indigenous? You know, how do I name you? And I think that in the naming, that is important because that's our identity. Um, the Bible talks about how our names are written, you know, in the palm of God. And and you don't want um, your ethnic identity to be your name. You know, you want your actual name. So, so I think, you know, I really try to call people to see people as individuals because there's such diversity within the Navajo population. I used to be an educator and, you know, people would ask me, well, what's, you know, what are Navajo students like? It's like, well, they're exactly like any other classroom. You've got the whole spectrum of everybody, you know, God created beautiful diversity throughout every population. So, you know, don't call me Indian. Don't call me Native American. You could call me Navajo, but the Navajo name is also a, a, span, a derivative of a Spanish name put onto the Navajo people. And in fact, as people ourselves, we call ourselves Diné, which Diné means the people in Navajo. And so, you know, use that term. And I think we're learning more as people go through some of the anti-racism work that we need to do in this country we're learning to call people by the names that they need want to be called by and listen to them. So for me, that's important. It's also important to recognize the lands. I think that at World Renew, we have followed some of the examples of um, some of the countries around the world, New Zealand and Australia and Canada being a couple of the leaders, to actually name the land that you're on when you're having public gatherings and there's some, a really good we website, actually it's called native dash land.ca. And you can type in your zip code or your address and you can find out what lands, what peoples used to have those lands. And so you can name and recognize them um, as part of your beginning of, of a public meeting. I think that's really important to do. Also, I think one thing that happens a lot is that people think that indigenous people only existed in history. And 
you know, frozen in time uh, with only one tribe perhaps represented, which maybe would be a plains tribe with teepees and horses and the typical, um, you know, traditional dress of perhaps the Sioux or something like that. And that that's what um, Indigenous people are and still are today. And so I think it's really important to not just know the history, knowing the history is important, but also to know the present and know um, the scientists and the doctors and like you referred to, the presidents and political leaders and all of the people of today and what they're doing. Um, the Navajo Nation is highly educated and I think they have the highest PhD rate for tribal peoples in the United States. And so, you know, this is not people who existed back then and are just gone now. So that's important. And then I guess I also would encourage your listeners to change how you celebrate certain holidays. Columbus Day is a day that has been changed in a number of states to be Indigenous Peoples Day. And I think that's important. You know, Columbus never actually set foot in the United States, as far as we can tell. And yet there's not a day to, to celebrate and to acknowledge the indigenous people of the United States. And so I think that's important. Halloween is another day, actually, that can be quite painful for indigenous people because our traditional dress um, gets used as a costume and misused. And so um, just being aware of that is important. You know, it, it really can almost be the equivalent of, of, you know, doing blackface with our traditional clothing. And so to be careful about that, certainly also Thanksgiving, it's a time where all of the racial stereotypes come out and stories aren't told in a realistic way. They're told as, you know, kind of like fairy tales and uh, all had a sweet ending and, and it didn't. And so learning some of those stories and learning how to talk about it differently is important. I appreciate anyone who even goes a step beyond um, and starts to change things like school mascots and so forth. I know the Redskins is, is a team that recently has made changes and it's been so long overdue. So just recognizing that um, at World Renew, we work really hard on our anti-racism work. And one thing we have instituted is to try to call our staff all to be upstanders. And when something happens in a meeting, to not call each other out, but call each other back in to trying to be the beloved, diverse community that God created us to be. And so we can say, ouch, when something has been said that is uh, a racial you know, microaggression, or we can say, oops, if we realize we just did it and, and said it, but then we process that. And there are so many different times in meetings that I've been in where I have wanted to say, ouch, or oops, you know, ouch, because somebody has just used a racial slur that involves indigenous um, people. And I haven't felt confident to do it because they don't understand that that's the world that I work in where it's okay to do that. But we need people to be upstanders and to learn these things and to realize what is offensive and what shouldn't be said and done or worn or um, used as visuals and mascots. That was Carol Brummer Bennett. Check out the work that she does with World Renew. Their website is worldrenew.net. 
In particular, you can look at the response work that they're doing with the Navajo and Zuni nations and support some of their efforts. They're good people. These conversations have had so much to offer, and there's plenty more ground to cover on grassroots, at Plant With Purpose, and beyond on this topic of environmental anti-racism. We wanted to leave you, though, with, with something that we found inspiring, and I think many of you will as well. I asked Dr. Ben Sanders on how we could capture the Christian imagination to be more proactive at taking on systemic racism. I believe that the church should be at the forefront of anti-racism, and Dr. Ben had such a compelling way for how to integrate that with our worship. What if, instead of responding in a way that was centered on conquering and establishing control, what if we began to practice worship and wonder in those spaces, right? So this is one of the key sort of, sort of cultural reflexes I'm trying to call our attention to and hopefully slowly begin to sort of rewire and reshape. What if Christians learn to relate to things that we cannot understand out of expressions of wonder and worship, right? How great is God if our greatest minds and the civilizations of which we are a part still have not figured out everything that God has created, even on this thing we call earth, right? What if the discovery of newness did not automatically trigger in us a sort of social and cultural drive for control and sort of creating a space in which everything is sort of predictable, right? Because it is controlled by us. But what if instead newness, newness led to, um, to a wonder and a worship that was not rooted in the sort of colonial violence? So that's one of the things uh, that I continue to see because we see the choice to conquer and control inside of how police officers interact with bodies of color across the nation. There's a lack, a clear lack of an ability in law enforcement training to prepare folks, Christian or not, for the sort of cultural and social and dare I say human practices of wonder. Maybe newness doesn't mean that I'm unsafe. Maybe it means that there's something for me to learn here. But I think um, what we're beginning to see just now is how deeply entrenched we are in the colonial reflexes, right? So that's there, there's there's one thing, right? We've got this sort of colonial reflex that we have to unlearn. This idea that if we encounter something new, if we don't control it and render it predictable, then eat terrible things will happen to us. But that's deep in us uh, as Westerners, and dare I say, particularly as Western Christians. So that's something that I think we we have to unlearn. So there's one piece. I'm really um real about this idea of, of, yeah, looking for starting with the posture of wonder and worship uh, towards newness. And I think it's kind of fun to extrapolate that, uh, that way of looking at things and just kind of play what if and imagine if you took that lens to a variety of different circles, you know, I think sometimes I, even with something more technical, like, like climate science, sometimes the novelty of it or the unfamiliarity and maybe even who it's coming from, leads to a knee-jerk dismissiveness instead of a, a wonder over, you know, not just the, the science, but also the solutions that could lead to. And sometimes when I discover the technicalities behind um, how you measure things or uh, how you can create carbon sinks in soil and forests, it's really fascinating. And I think the full breadth of that is, you know, something you've seen uh, demonstrated by folks like George Washington Carver, just like, 
complete and total awe and engagement and also looking for solutions right beneath the surface of things that are, are right in front of us, like peanuts or trees or oil. Yes, yes. But you see, that wonder and that sense of worship, it exists in direct contradiction to the socioeconomic principles that drive our country. The competition, the idea that uh, we must always be producing with our wonder, and, or, or at least showing that we're going to produce soon, right? There's something about what goes into worship and wonder. So I'm a Baptist, right? So um, when I think of worship, this is important because for the same reason that context is important to violence, context is important to worship, right? Uh, my understanding of worship is that um, we may and we should, right, plan it. <laughs> um, but we cannot control if it's actually worship, what happens inside of it. So how do we press these two ways of knowing, these two things that we know to be true, these undeniable realities? We are connected to the soil and we are connected to those bodies that something is trying to teach us is not connected to the soil, right? So there, there's a fracture inside of what could otherwise be um, a Christian social vision for the redemption of creation. But first we have to refute the idea that certain bodies are um, more essentially a part of creation than others. Anti-racism is a journey of wonder and worship. Environmental justice is a journey of wonder and worship. And I look forward to exploring this more and more on this show. And I look forward to exploring more of the ways our pursuits of environmental justice and racial justice inevitably lead to one another like Dr. Ayanna Johnson said, like Dr. Ben Sanders said, and like the rest of today's guests have demonstrated, we can't have one without the other. Grassroots is a Plant With Purpose production. Be sure to follow us on social media at plantwpurpose and visit us at plantwithpurpose.org where you can plant a tree for a dollar each or contribute to the Readiness and Resilience Fund for COVID-19 that we talked about in an earlier episode. Big thanks to the Reverend Aaron Rogers, Dr. Ben Sanders, and Carol Bremer Bennett for their appearances on today's show. You can check out Aaron's work with Faith for Justice at faithforjustice.org and Carol's work with World Renew at worldrenew.net. Also look them up on social media. They're great follows. Show production and consultation came from Chad Michael Snavely, Jessica Collins, and Nick LaPara. Thank you all. Uh, the show was written and recorded on Kumeyaay land. I'm Christy Renault. I'm Philippe Lazaro. See you next time. And in the meantime, keep practicing resurrection. <laughs>